Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Sunday here on KFI AM 640. It's the truth about money. Rick Edelman here. You know the drill. We're going to talk about whatever's on your mind, including the Dow 20,000. Yeah, I'm Rick Edelman. I was supposed to be off this weekend, and for the most part, technically still am, but I couldn't resist coming onto the program with you today because the Dow has hit its momentous milestone of 20,000, an all-time high. And there's a lot of folks excited about it, some a little bit nervous, so I wanted to share with you what this means to have a Dow at 20,000. Well, we hit 20,000 after our 19,000 in just 42 days. Yeah, we gained 1,000 points in just about a month or so. Pretty astonishing. However, let's keep one dampening fact in mind. It took us 17 years to double. Yeah, the Dow hit 10,000 in the year 2000. And it took us 17 years to double in value. So we really can't get terribly excited about this in that respect. Still, it is a momentous milestone, psychologically speaking, if for no other reason. And consumer confidence is high, partly as a result of the Dow hitting 20,000. Or is it that the Dow hit 20,000 because consumer sentiment is high? Is it a chicken or an egg? That's, of course, for you to decide. The more important thing for you to decide is this. What does it mean for your portfolio? What does it mean for your investment strategy? Does this mean the stock market is going to get to another all-time high from here? Or will this all-time high be something that we will be stuck with for a long time, just as we were a Dow 10,000? The message is very simple. Nobody knows the answer to that question. And because nobody knows the answer to that question, we have to stay focused not on the Dow itself, but on our goals because it's our goals that properly determine what we should be doing with our investments. Think about this. Whether you are excited about Donald Trump's presidency or unhappy about it, it's not going to be terribly relevant to you if you have a life expectancy of more than four or eight years. And I'm willing to bet that you do have a life expectancy of more than four or eight years. Likely it is more like 40 than it is four. And as a result, we have to recognize that whether this presidency performs brilliantly and favorably or the alternative, this too shall pass. So we need to focus not on what's the market going to do tomorrow or next week, next month, next quarter, next year, but rather what do we need to be doing in order to achieve the goals we've laid out for ourselves and our families. So ask yourself, are you saving for retirement? Are you saving for college for a child or grandchild? Are you saving to buy a home or perhaps a second home? That's what it's all about. What are you saving for? And when will you spend the money that you're saving? And how much money will you need to be spending? Those are the three questions that boil down the basics of financial planning. What's your goal? When are you going to achieve it? And how much money will it cost when you do? 
That's really it. Once you decide what you want to do, when you want to do it, and how much it's going to cost, now we can do some reverse engineering. We can work backwards. How much time I have between now and achievement of my goal, and based on how much money I'm contributing toward my goal, now I can calculate the rate of return that I need to earn. And once I know the rate of return I need to earn, now I know how much money I should be placing into the stock market. And that is how we back into the question of should I increase or decrease my stock allocation? Because that's what I find a lot of folks are asking themselves these days. A lot of folks are looking at the performance of their portfolio saying, gee, my portfolio hasn't jumped in value over the last 42 days the way the Dow has. Well, that's because you haven't had your money exclusively in the 30 Dow stocks. Yeah, by the way, that is all that's in the Dow, 30 stocks, 30 of the biggest companies in America. And if your portfolio is more than or different from those 30 stocks, your portfolio performance is different than what you've seen the Dow doing of the last month and a half. And as a result of that, you need to recognize that you shouldn't be comparing your portfolio to that of the Dow. Instead, compare your portfolio to the goals you've established for yourself. Is your portfolio designed to get you where you want to go? If it is, there's nothing you need to do different. But if it isn't, maybe this is a good opportunity for you to alter your asset allocation, shift the amount of money you have in stocks versus bonds versus real estate versus gold versus natural resources, oil and gas, foreign securities, and so on. So if you don't have a diversified portfolio, if you're not sure if your diversified portfolio is the one that you need now, considering the market's at, a, for the moment, an all-time high, and we have a brand-new president with a brand-new administration and a brand-new Congress, Maybe these are the times to take a look at what you're doing, how you're doing it, and why you're doing it the way you're doing it. Because it's not just about market performance. It's equally about market risk. It's equally about expenses. It's equally about taxes, which is a pretty significant expense. So we need to make sure you're doing everything as best as possible, given your circumstances, given your limitations, given your objectives. And if you don't know how to do that, if you're not sure you're doing it right, that's why you turn to a financial advisor. And if you don't have one, if you don't know if the one you have is providing the services that you need, well, you're welcome to call us. That's what we do at Edelman Financial Services. This might be the first time you're tackling these subjects, but it's not the first time we are. We've been doing this for 30 years. We now do it for more than 30,000 individuals and families all across the country from 42 offices coast to coast. And we're happy to do it for you just like we've done it for thousands of folks just like you. So do it on your own. Do it with an advisor. If you're not sure of either of the above, give us a call. and We'll be happy to provide a second opinion for you to error check, validate for you what you're doing to make sure that it's what you ought to be doing. If nothing else, you'll get confirmation, and that confirmation can help you sleep a whole lot easier. Remember, we don't know what's going to happen next. Nobody does, and anyone who claims to know is either lying or cheating, either to themselves or, even worse, to you. So this is a wonderful opportunity to take advantage of the new environment that we are finding ourselves in. The year is off to a fabulous start. doesn't mean it will stay that way, and you want to know that you're protected and that no matter what happens, you still have the opportunity to achieve your goals. See if we can help. 
and just give us a call, 888-PLAN-RICK. You can do that right now, by the way, 888-752-6742. You can do it right now all the way through 8.30 p.m. this evening, Eastern. In fact, you can do that seven days a week. My colleagues and I at Edelman Financial are ready to help you with the answers to the questions you need. You can also go to my website, rickedelman.com. That's ricedelman.com. Click on that red button. Uh, I want to talk to an advisor, and we'll be happy to answer your question as well. The rest of this program today is going to be focused on recent conversations I've had with callers over the recent past. I know you're going to enjoy these. Odds are high they're asking questions that you have as well. So sit back, relax, enjoy today's program, and call us if you need us. 888-PLAN-RICK or visit us online at ricedelman.com. I'm Rick Edelman. I'll be with you again next week. Rick Edelman is an investment advisor representative of Edelman Financial Services, a registered investment advisor, also a registered principal of VF Legacy Securities, an affiliated broker-dealer member FINRA SIPC. Do not use the show's content as the basis for any investment decisions. Instead, consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence. Rick scheduled a best-of show this weekend, supposedly so he could buy a new abacus that counts all the way to 20000 We doubt that, because Rick doesn't use an abacus. Although he took calls from listeners, you're only hearing the ones where he knew the answers because he's a financial advisor, not a Zen master. Let's get the latest from Larry Perel on the KFI Newsroom. Welcome back to the program. Heading right out to Hillsborough, New Jersey. Rich, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hi, Rick. Thank you for taking my call. You're very welcome. How can I help? A uh, little background on my wife and myself. Uh, we're both retired. Uh, between our Social Security and pensions, it meets all of our expenses pretty much for the month. Our house is paid in full approximately. It's, the value is about 450000 And we have assets um, totaling 835000 between stocks, bonds, cash, small company, dividends we receive, and an emergency fund. The question is, right now, um, I have a bond portfolio that has matured, um, roughly $200,000, which I put in about 10 years ago at five, between 5 and almost 7%. Um, what we're looking for is basically a low-risk investment um, to put the cash into, mostly to get income and some growth, and I just want to know what your recommendations were well you gave me a couple of contradictions there you said you wanted the money relatively safe but you wanted income and growth which Correct. is it yes. you can't have all three you got to uh, choose okay um probably mostly mostly income okay how much income uh probably in the neighborhood of about uh between five and six five, around five and six thousand a year okay five thousand dollars a year on an account of two hundred thousand mm-hmm. um, dollars is two and a half percent. Okay. Right. So right, I can actually put that, I guess, in a in a ten year treasury, just about. Yeah. So you know that's not um, a real big concern. So there mm-hmm. there you go. Simple as that. So I would agree with you. If you want the money safe but generating five grand a year, uh, a treasury bond is your answer. So you don't okay. have to worry about it. Um, now what we could argue is that inflation will undermine the value of that income over time. Correct. uh, Which is a problem. So I would argue that you want to actually earn more than the 2.5% 
that you need. In other words, let's say that instead of earning two and a half, you earned three and a half. You spend the two and a half, you take the extra one, reinvest it to grow over time to help offset the cost of inflation. Um, and that's why you made the point earlier, you not only wanted income, you also wanted growth because you recognize that issue. Yes, correct. The problem is that you're not going to find a treasury paying three and a half. That means you have to move up the risk scale. Now you've got to say to yourself, am I willing to subject my portfolio to some volatility, to some risk in an effort to get that little bit extra of, of a return? And I would probably say in your situation not to do it. I would probably say here, stick with the treasury at two and a half. Right. And don't worry about the inflationary issue simply because you've already said to me you get enough income to support yourself. And that's correct. You've got one point three million dollars worth of assets. In other words, inflation's right. not gonna harm you. Inflation's not gonna just wipe you out or destroy you over time. I'm not terribly worried about it for you in your case. And you're not talking about taking all of your money and putting it into these T bills. You're only taking a quarter of your liquid investment. So for all those reasons, I would say Take the 200 grand, throw it into the treasuries, have a nice day. Okay. What about going for, you know, bumping up the ladder a little bit for some growth to get like the three and a half to five percent? Well, now what we really need to be doing is looking at the portfolio on a more comprehensive basis. In other words, you're approaching this as a silo. You've said, I've got 835000 in total in investments, but I only want to talk about the two hundred grand over here. You're ignoring the other six hundred and thirty-five grand over there. So I don't know where that money's invested. So instead of saying, here's how I want to handle this silo, and then I have another silo and a third silo and a fourth silo, I'd rather look at it as one big comprehensive portfolio so that we are deploying and allocating all of the assets in concert with each other so that we aren't working independently. In other words, I want to build an orchestra. I don't want a bunch of musicians on stage. I want one orchestra. And so I would suggest that you meet with a financial advisor. We've got offices not far from you in, in New Jersey uh, where we could right. look at Short your total Hills. portfolio. Yeah, we're in Short Hills, not far from you, right. um, where we could look at it in totality to see how much of your money should be in treasuries versus how much money should be in, say, blue chip stocks or foreign stocks or real estate or other corporate bonds or precious metals uh, or exponential technologies or natural resources and, and so on and so forth and construct a comprehensive, highly diversified, globally based portfolio that can give you the blending that you want of income now as well as growth for later. Okay, sounds good. I think you'll end up with a much happier result if you go in that fashion. Okay, very good. Okay. Okay, thanks very much, Rick. I you're, appreciate it. You're very welcome, Rich. You can do the very same thing Rich just did, which is just call 888-PLAN-RICK, and uh, we'll talk with you and go through your portfolio. And, and frankly, if you give us a couple of hours, you know, Rich and I just spent a couple of minutes talking with each other, but you give me a couple of hours or my colleagues, we'll do a much better job in a couple of hours than we will in a couple of minutes. In fact, if you give us a couple of weeks, you know, we get together first for a couple of hours and then we spend a lot of time analyzing, researching, evaluating and come back to you with our recommendations after a couple of weeks, the answer is even more comprehensive. So the more time you give us, the better job we can do for you. In fact, one of the challenges that investors have and, uh, is figuring out what is my income going to be from my portfolio, from my situation. And one key element of income generation these days, Social Security, right? That's an increasingly important element for so many retirees. 
And there are now a whole bunch of calculators online for free that enable you to figure out how much you can expect to receive from Social Security, depending on your age and your marital status and uh, when you start to take it and how much did you work and, and, and those kinds of things. But you've got to be careful. The Social Security Administration has compared six different online calculators and used them to figure out what are the predictions that these calculators are producing. How much monthly income can you expect to get? They ran five different scenarios on these each of these six different calculators. The calculators were from AARP, the Center for Retirement Research at Boston College, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the CFPB, bank rate, financial engines. So you've got nonprofit, you've got academic, you've got government agency, you've got two um, for-profit corporate players. So good broad cross-section of participants here. And the Social Security Administration ran five scenarios of these six different calculators, and they found out that the predictions varied widely from 2500 a month to 3400 a month. They varied by $900 a month in benefit. You tell me, is 900 bucks a big difference in your monthly income? Yeah, I would think so. That demonstrates that you've got to be really careful when using online calculators. Why were they so different? Because each calculator varies in the information it asks you to input. Some of them ask you about your marital status. Others don't. Some of them want to know your life expectancy. Others don't. So depending on the data you give it, you know, it's what they say about computers and data. Trash in, trash out. So whatever you input is going to determine what your output is. And so you've got to be really, really careful before relying on these online calculators. I'll just simply put it in this context. The calculators are free, and that pretty much reflects their value. I'm Rick Edelman. This is The Truth About Money. Stay with us. Our phone number, 888-PLAN-RICK, online at ricedelman.com. Let's get the latest from Larry Perel in the KFI Newsroom. I'm Rick Edelman. This is The Rick Edelman Show. So it's the new year, and uh, I know you're trying to figure out how to get off on the right foot so that you're taking care of the big things that matter from a personal finance perspective. And you know what they are. Your retirement account at work, your IRA accounts, managing Social Security, making sure your assets pass to your kids the way that you want with no muss, no fuss, no surprises. That's what our seminar is all about, preparing for retirement. We're doing the seminar this Tuesday and Wednesday, January 31st and February 1st, 7 p.m. each evening. We're doing it in Santa Monica and Woodland Hills. Some if you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 
insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. And Mawa, New Jersey, Carrollton, Texas, Scottsdale, Arizona, Burlington, Massachusetts, and Maitland, Florida. Also in California, Concord, and Santa Clara. We're doing the seminar again Tuesday and Wednesday, February 7th and 8th in Chicagoland, Costa Mesa, Pasadena, in Mount Laurel, New Jersey, Fort Washington. We're doing it in uh, Rochester, Michigan, and Ann Arbor. We're also doing it in Salt Lake City, Boston, Boca Raton, and Miami in the Florida area, and in Northern Virginia, Alexandria, and McLean. Just $15 a person, 25 a couple. You can register by calling us on the phone at 888-PLAN-REC. You can do that right now, all the way up to 8.30 p.m. this evening. Or over uh, on the Internet, go right to our website at rickedelman.com. That's ricedelman.com. For learning how to manage your retirement accounts and IRAs, maximizing Social Security, and dealing with wills and trusts. Rick Edelman here, heading straight out to Miami, Florida. Michael's patiently standing by. Welcome to the show, Michael. How are you? I'm fine, Rick. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. How can I help? Rick, um, I'm the owner of two Genworth deferred annuity contracts that are primarily fixed, but there's a portion of them that are indexed to the S&P 500. Now, each contract is worth about $400,000. Both of them were purchased in 2013. Now, Genworth, as you know, has been doing horribly primarily because of their long-term care division. And even from what I hear next year, they're likely going to be taken over by a Chinese company called uh, China Oceanwide. Right. My question to you is, do I, as an annuity contract holder, have anything to worry about here? Is the risk of of losing any of the contract value because of the company doing so poorly enough that you would advise me to surrender the policies and do a, a 1035 rollover into another company. Now, if I did surrender at this point, I'm going to be hit with a 7% surrender charge, which is about $56,000. The, the surrender charges don't disappear until uh, September 2020. Yeah. It's a very difficult situation that you're in, and you're kind of a poster child for why we're not big fans of uh, annuity products, uh, fixed, especially fixed annuity products like you own uh, and hybrids. So there are two kinds of annuities out there. There are variable annuities, and there are fixed annuities, what you have. In a fixed annuity, the assets, when you invest, when you buy that annuity policy, uh, the money you've invested is added to the general account of the insurance company, which means if the insurance company goes broke, your money is gone. That doesn't happen in a variable annuity. When you own a variable, the money is segregated in a separate account, which means even if the insurance company goes broke, your money remains untouched. Uh, and people uh, have had a number of experiences of this where the with insurance companies going broke, the variable annuity holders were intact, the fixed annuity holders were devastated. So uh, you have to ask yourself, what is the likelihood that Genworth is going to collapse? Uh, at present, it is not widely expected that Genworth is going to go broke. In fact, the fact that they're going to be purchased by the Chinese company gives a lot of confidence because the Chinese firm has substantial assets and resources and they're not about to allow uh, a newly purchased subsidiary to wipe out their own investment. So there isn't a lot of concern at the moment that Genworth is going to go broke. But these things happen, and when they happen, they happen unexpectedly and with speed, which means by the time you hear about it, it's too late to do anything about it. 
So, yes, you are at risk because you're in a fixed account with your money subject to the fortunes of the insurance company. Now, if the insurance company does go broke, there is a state insurance pool to protect policyholders and annuity contract holders. However, many states have limits. Typically, it's $100,000. Some states have higher limits. So, Michael, you're in Florida. You might want to go contact the Florida state insurance regulator and ask them, hey, if my insurance company goes broke, how much will you protect me? And find out how much of your 400000 is at risk. Maybe it's none of it. Maybe it's 300 of the 400 is at risk. And furthermore, ask them if the state had to take over the account, would you still be allowed to take a lump sum or would the state require you to take a series of monthly payments to get your money back over the course of your lifetime? That would be restriction on liquidity if that were the case. So you might want to find that out now to help you assess whether it is worth taking the risk, I'll put that in quotes, by keeping your contracts versus paying the fee to move to another contract where that doesn't exist. Uh, There is another uh, potential solution, and I don't know if this will be available to you, but it's worth a phone call. As I mentioned, there's a difference between fixed annuities and variables. Variables, by definition, are safer because they don't have the general account problem of the fixed. The money is segregated. So ask Genworth if they would be willing to allow you to convert your fixed annuity to a variable annuity without you having to pay the surrender charge. Since you're not leaving the money from Genworth, it's, maybe they would argue it's not technically a surrender. I don't know if they'd be willing to agree. I don't know if legally they're allowed to agree, but it's worth a question. This way you can have your cake and eat it too. You move the money over to the variable, You don't have to worry about it being segregated, uh, and uh, you avoid the surrender charge if that's possible. Now, you do have a new issue in the variable. The reason they call it a variable annuity is that the returns vary. There's no guarantee in a variable annuity as to what the value of the account will be. You bought the hybrid product because you wanted to know you were not going to risk stock market losses. You wanted to know there was no risk of losing money in the account. Losses can occur in the variable depending on the sub-accounts you select. If you select stock market sub-accounts, it'll go up and down with the stock market. So you might want to choose sub-accounts that are very conservative, that closely mimic, or as closely as you can, mimic the safety and predictability of the fixed account that you currently enjoy. So those are options. So in other words, Michael, you've got a lot of decisions to make. I would prefer that you evaluate these decisions in the broader context of your overall financial plan. For example... How much of your money does this represent? How much money do you have elsewhere outside of these Genworth annuities? Well, the eight hundred thousand um, represents about ten percent of my my after tax net worth. And where's the other ninety? Well, I have about a third of it in municipal bonds, about a third of it in annuities, and about a third of it being managed by a financial planner in a in a diversified. Uh, collection of things like you advocate. So you have, though, another third uh, in other annuity products. Yeah. And are they fixed annuities yeah. as well? Um, one of them is fixed, and the rest of them are variable. Okay. So I'm not terribly worried for you, because worst-case scenario, these accounts blow up, and you've just lost 10% of your money. That's only 10%. It's better than if it were 90%. So you, you can sustain the hit. So I'm not worried for you, but I'd put it in the category of annoying, for sure. 
so I think you should go back to your financial advisor, and I think you should talk with a second financial advisor to get a second opinion, an independent third party who can give you a different point of view potentially, and address the issues you've addressed here. So I would say you don't have to be fearful of an imminent risk of Genworth going broke. There doesn't seem to be any news on the horizon to suggest that. Hopefully the acquisition by the Chinese company will solve that concern. So uh, I think you're in great shape to talk with your current advisor who sold you this annuity, go to your other financial advisor if it's a different person who's managing the other assets, and talk with someone who you're currently not talking to just to get an overall comprehensive review of everything going on to help you make this decision. Well, Rick, thank you very much. It's interesting. I've done exactly what you say. The guy that I bought the annuity from says, keep it. There's no risk. I have another financial planner who says, sell it. And um, from what I understand from my reading, the chances the, – the, historically, annuities have been very, very safe, and it would be extremely unusual for me to get stuck and get nothing out of this. Yeah, and that's what they said when they booked the ticket on the Titanic. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, you know, the fact, that, okay. the fact that it's rare for an insurance company to go broke isn't the point. I mean, we've already talked about Penn Treaty, how they got liquidated. So these things happen, and you're right to be diligent. You're right to look at it. I want to make sure that the advisor who said don't worry isn't just giving you a knee-jerk reaction when, you know, when he says your money is perfectly safe. Really, if it does go broke, is that guy going to honor that pledge and reimburse you the four hundred grand? So talk with the state insurance regulator. They're watching this very closely. Get their point of view uh, and get a third opinion. Now you've got two opinions of different views. Go get a third opinion and uh, – Make as effective a decision as you possibly can. And what the lesson here might be, don't put so much money in a single contract. Diversify among a variety yeah, of insurance yeah. companies to help further benefit or protect you from any one thing going wrong with any one company. Okay. Rick, it sounds like great advice. Thank you. I appreciate your time, and I will do as you say. You're very welcome, Michael. Thank you for calling. I appreciate it. And it's equally important that when you talk with uh, another financial advisor, you're dealing with a fee-based advisor. One of my concerns is that when you're buying this Genworth annuity product, it's a commission-based product. That's why there's a 7% surrender charge. This guy probably made a commission of $40,000 selling this product to you. That's not necessarily the kind of person I want to rely on uh, to take my advice from. So deal with a fee-based advisor, and if we can be of any help, call us, 888-PLAN-REC. We're happy to look at it for you and help you figure out exactly what is in your best interest. I'm Rick Edelman. Stay with us. Let's get the latest from Larry Perel in the KFI Newsroom. Welcome back to the program. Rick Edelman here. We're going to say hello to Edward. He's in Titusville, New Jersey. Ed, welcome to the program. How are you doing? Hello. I'm doing well. I appreciate you taking my call. Happy to. How can I help? Okay. My question is about my uh, 457 deferred compensation accounts. Yep. I have two 457 accounts, one with my current employer, which I still contribute to, and the second with a previous employer that I no longer contribute to. Okay. My question is, may I roll over the 457 account from my previous employer to a traditional IRA, and if so, are there any penalties or fees I would incur? Thank y you. Yes and no. If you separate from service, meaning you've quit, you fired, whatever, 
you can take money from an old employer plan, a 457 plan, a 403B plan, a 401K plan. You can take money from a former employer, also the thrift savings plan, if you are a federal employee or were. If you separate from service, meaning you've left that job, you can roll that money over to an IRA if you wish. If you do it correctly, meaning uh, the favored way is called a direct transfer, meaning you simply tell your old boss to send the money directly to the IRA account. You don't get the money as an interim step. Uh, and your IRA provider should take care of the paperwork for you routinely. We do this routinely for our, our clients. It's uh, every financial advisor does. So you simply go to wherever you want your IRA to be, and they will get the money on your behalf, and the money will be direct transferred from your old account into your new IRA. And if you do it in that fashion, there's no tax implication involved. Also, there should not be any fees unless fees are assessed by the investments you owned. In other words, the IRS will not assess any fees or penalties or taxes, but it is possible that the investments you own could assess a fee. For example, if you leave the old account, there might be a surrender charge. Uh, there might be an account closing fee. If you go to the IRA, the new IRA may assess a fee. They may charge you a commission uh, for the investments that you purchase in the IRA or some other kinds of account fees or what have you. So you simply want to ask the question of your old employer and say, hey, if I leave, if I take my money out, will you, Mr. Employer, charge me a fee or will the investments that I own charge me a fee? I'm willing to bet the answers will be no, but it's worth asking. And then when you go to the new IRA, you want to ask that provider, whether you're dealing with a financial advisor or a financial institution like a bank or a brokerage firm or a mutual fund company or an annuity company, you want to ask them, hey, what are the fees, what are the commissions, what are the sales charges that I will pay to open my account and what are the fees and expenses I will pay while I maintain my account? And you would want to compare, quite frankly, the expenses of the new account to the expenses of the old account to make sure that it's in your best interest to make this switch. If you do it correctly, Ed, you should incur no costs to leave and few, if any, costs to enter on the new side. But you do want to ask all those questions. And these are just two of the considerations uh, the fees and expenses when dealing with an IRA rollover. You also want to look at the investment options and the diversification extent, comparing that between the old and the new. You want to look at the expenses as we talked about. You also want to know about services. What am I? What services are you going to provide me, and how do they compare to the services I currently receive where the money currently is? Uh, how old are you, Ed? Uh, 55. Okay, so this is something important, too, because in your 457 plan, you're allowed to withdraw the money starting at age 55. But if you roll it over to an IRA, you're not allowed to make withdrawals until you're 59 and a half. So you're locking the money up tax-wise for another f almost five years. So that's a consideration. Uh, you can probably borrow the money in the 457. You aren't able to borrow the money in the IRA. Yet another consideration. There are also legal issues, uh, such as protection from creditors. Uh, 457 
1957 plans may enjoy protection that IRAs do not. You need to investigate that. Uh, so there are a lot of considerations, such as state taxes, that we haven't talked about, to evaluate whether or not a rollover is in your best interest. So you want to evaluate this in conjunction with the financial advisor you're dealing with to make sure that you have full disclosure and that you understand here's the situation where the money is, here's what the situation will be, where the money will go, and which of the two is the best scenario for me. And that way you're making a decision on an informed basis that you know is in your best interest. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your information. I appreciate that. You're very welcome, Ed. I'm happy to help. And this is the kind of information that you really need to make sure that you're getting. Because too often people are unaware of the complexities. And if you just go to, you know, some commission-based product-pushing investment salesperson and say, hey, can I roll my 457 over to an IRA with you? The guy will say, yeah, sure, no problem, sign here. And he might not tell you about the expenses and the fees and the commissions and the sales charges and the tax implications and the liquidity restrictions, all that are associated with making the move. So you want to be really careful about the question you ask because somebody might give you the answer to the question, which is not necessarily the full and complete answer that you really ought to be hearing. This is the kind of information that we share with you here, of course, every week on this program. And I also want to invite you to watch my television special that's airing on public television stations all across the country this month. It's called The Truth About Retirement. This show first aired on PBS stations back in August and was so popular, so successful, that most public television stations are airing the program again as encore presentations. The uh, program is uh, covering three subjects all focused on the strategies that you need to help you reach a safe and secure retirement, including how to manage the money in your IRAs and retirement accounts, the same subject we were just talking about with Ed, plus how to maximize your Social Security benefits, and how to handle your wills and trusts. The show is airing in Los Angeles, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., San Francisco, New York, Boston, St. Louis, uh, Connecticut and Hartford. It's airing in um, Houston and in Florida. It's airing all over the country. There have been more than a thousand broadcasts of this program across the country so far and covering more than 75% of the U.S. And here's the best part. We are presenting this program uh, on behalf of public television because Gene and I are big fans of uh, Downton Abbey and we're still upset that the Shows over. Uh, we love Nova, and we, uh, you know, who doesn't uh, who doesn't love uh, all the programming that you get uh, on PBS? And so, uh, it's our way of saying thank you for supporting public television. And so, if you watch the show and make a pledge to public television of two hundred forty dollars, that's just twenty bucks a month for twelve months. We will provide you as a thank you to you of a personal financial plan. Our clients typically pay eight hundred dollars to receive this financial plan, but you get it for free when you make a pledge to your local public television station of just $240. So you save hundreds of dollars. Public television gets your donation, and we're thrilled to be able to provide that support. And we invite you to take advantage of it, not only supporting your local public television station, but also receiving a personal financial plan from us here at Edelman Financial Services. You can get more information at rickedelman.com. The truth about retirement. Triple Eight Plan Rick. More of your phone calls when we come back. Stay with us on The Rick Edelman Show.
Thanks for hanging around this half hour on the Rick Edelman Show on KFI AM 640. We're taking some of our favorite recent phone calls from recent shows, giving you the opportunity to hear questions and topics you might have missed. Remember, if you need help, you need questions answered for your own personal financial situation, call us anytime you like, seven days a week, Monday through Sunday, 888-PLAN-RICK. That's 888-752-6742. Or visit us online at rickedelman.com. That's ricedelman.com. Click that red button. I want to talk to an advisor. Let's go right back to the phones and your questions. Right out to Kenyan country in California. Hello, Heidi. How are you? Welcome to the program. Good. Hi, Rick. How are you doing? Doing great. Um, I have some questions about um, planning for my retirement. I'm 34 years old. Um, in, in this 07, 08, 09 area, I lost a lot of money in the stock market. I got pretty scared and basically pulled everything out of it. So I wanted to talk to you, you know, my situation, see how you would recommend investing. I currently own my house. It, I have about 13150 in equity in it. Between all my checkings and savings, I have about 85K, and I do have one Roth IRA with a couple thousand in it. And, I'm, you know, I'm very risk-averse, so I'll be okay taking a, a modest growth so I don't lose everything again. You know, but I know i got to do something, so I'm curious to see what, what would you recommend. So back in 07, 08, you said you received inheritances? Yeah, you know, um, yeah, with some relatives died, and my dad was taking care of it, and he put it in a generic Vanguard account for me. And I'm sure they thought, oh, you're young, you can deal with a high-risk tolerance. But I was very sad to see all the stuff that they had worked hard for their whole life for and leave to me basically get pretty much wiped out. And how, So how much so money I, was it that was invested for you? About thirty thousand, and I think I was able to get about ten of it. So, yeah. So you lost two thirds of your money and got scared and, yeah. and didn't want to lose the rest and pulled out the ten grand. Yeah, and then the rest of what I have is what I've obviously been working for. And, and do you re- do you regret anything about that saga? Do you regret having invested in the first place because it was really yes. too risky? Or, I regret or, letting my dad handle it and like put me in such a high risk thing because I rather. I've had thirty thousand to ten. <laughs> okay. Do you regret having pulled the money out when you did? No, I don't think so. Do you know what the value of the account would have been today had you not pulled the money out? I'm afraid you're going to tell me. Have you ever given that any thought? Not really. Okay. Um, how much financial education do you have? Not very much, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, in school, high school, I mean, did they ever provide you a personal finance course or an economics course when you were in high school? No. And when you were in college, what was your major? Um, biology. Okay, so you never took a business class or? No. Gotcha, okay. Or an investment class. You've never been to investment seminars, I, I imagine. No. Gotcha. So in other words, Heidi, you're just like everybody else. Um <laughs> So feel, so feel good about that. So don't worry. Don't be, don't be upset or feel, um, you know, I'm not trying to make you feel bad at all. I'm just trying to help everybody understand. Right now, everybody listening to you is relating to you. Everybody else is saying, yeah, I never took a class either. Yeah, I don't know how this stuff works either. No, I don't like risk either. No, I, I would have panicked too. Everybody is saying exactly what you said. So what do we do about it? That's the question, right? That's what you. That's why you called. Exactly. So there are two answers I will give you. One of them is pretty good. The other one is an awful lot better. Okay? You believe me? Yes, I do. Okay. So here's the deal. Here's the pretty good answer. It's not a great answer. I'm not really thrilled with it, but it's pretty good. You made a very good 
explanation of your attitude about risk, about investment risk. You understand your personality well. You recognize your risk tolerance, and you articulated it uh, eloquently. You don't want to take a lot of risk. You don't want to put your money in a scenario or in a situation where you could lose a lot of it. You went through that once, and it you didn't like it, and you don't want to do it again. Yes. Therefore, on that basis, I wouldn't argue with you. I wouldn't try to change your mind. I would simply say, okay, let's therefore construct an investment strategy that is, in fact, pretty low in risk, that gives you a portfolio that is very likely to be consistent. I say very likely because nobody can ever, you know, guarantee anything, mm -hmm. but, but one that is designed to match the level of volatility you're willing to tolerate. Um, this kind of a portfolio would be what we would call a conservative or moderately conservative portfolio. The returns will not be very high, but neither will be the risks. And if you invest in this way for the next 40 years, I mean, you're only 33, um, you'll likely be able to achieve your goals. You'll have to work hard, you know, meaning you're going to have to work hard to save money and you're going to have to save dutifully in a retirement plan at work and in IRAs. You said you had a small Roth already. Uh, you're going to have to keep doing what you're doing. You're going to have to keep doing it for a long time, even after you get married and have kids. And I'm guessing you don't have either one at this point. Am I wrong? No. Okay. So um, even after you've married and kids and a house and a spouse, and um, you're still going to have to do all that saving and, and hard work. Having a spouse makes it a lot easier because now there's two of you uh, working mm -hmm. toward the common goal. Um, but it, it's doable. So like I said, it's a pretty good answer. It, it, uh, the reason I'm not thrilled with it is that it does take a, quite a bit of hard work on your part to make it happen. But you can make it happen, and, it, and it, it can work that way. And a good financial advisor can design for you the specific investment strategy to achieve what we've just described. In fact, you can even get a jump start with it with the guide to portfolio selection on our website, the GPS at rickedelman.com. You can answer several questions there, and it will design for you a portfolio that will be in sync with what we're describing. So it's not terribly hard to build. Um, at our website, it's fast and fun and free. It'll take you two minutes to figure that out on our website, or you can talk with my financial advisors, and we can do that for you as well. It's not terribly difficult for us because we're experts at this. That's my first answer for you, okay? But it's only a pretty good answer. It's not a great answer. And the reason it's not a great answer is that there's a lot of hard work for you. And missed opportunities, because you're going to limit yourself to a relatively low rate of return despite the fact that higher returns are available in the marketplace. And that's why I would rather shift you to the other answer. And the other answer means a much higher level of blank. What is that? A much higher level of what? Risk. Risk, you think the answer is? No, my dear, that is not the correct answer. And I knew, Heidi, that that's what it was you were going to be thinking of. No, I don't want you to take necessarily a higher level of risk. You know what I want you to take? A much higher yeah. level of education. Because okay. the reason you're fearful of the market volatility, the reason you 
panicked in 08 when you saw a 65% loss in value. The reason that you allowed yourself to get invested in those kinds of investments in the first place was your lack of knowledge, was the lack of education that you've had. Because as you've noted, you've no one's ever taught you this stuff. So I would argue that if you would spend a little bit of energy, won't take a lot of time, and it actually will be fun, by learning how investments work, you will discover that they're not nearly as scary as you thought. You'll also discover how they operate, and you'll discover how to design them in conjunction with an advisor to help you achieve the goals that you have, so that all of it means you'll be able to build a portfolio that's a little bit more risky, not a lot, but a little bit more, but can which provide you the opportunity for better returns than you otherwise would limit yourself to. And I think because you're only 33, it's well worth it to you to do this. And so I would encourage you to let me help provide you with the education to demystify and uh, clear up some of the misconceptions that you might have, the misinformation you might have, so that you realize, you know what? Investment risk isn't as scary as I thought. Volatility isn't as scary. I can build a portfolio that's diversified, understanding how it works so that if at any given moment it might not be doing what I want, I'll understand it and I won't fear it so much. Does that make sense? Yes. Uh, when we go to break in a moment, I'm going to put you on hold and grab your address, and I'm going to mail you a copy of my first book, The Truth About Money. And it'll help you understand how all this stuff works. And then what I'm going to want to do is have a conversation with you and with one of my colleagues to figure out if it has changed your opinion. If not, you stick with version one, a pretty good idea. If it has changed your opinion, you can shift to item two so that you can get best opportunity from the financial markets that are out there. Does that make sense? Yes, that sounds great. Okay. Then that's our game plan, and we're going to help make sure that your financial future is everything you want it to be. Thank you. This is The Truth About Money. Stay with us. Let's get the latest from Larry Perel on the KFI Newsroom. Welcome back to the program. Rick Edelman here. You're listening to The Truth About Money. Heading out to uh, Long Beach. Carl, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hi, Rick. What can I do for you? I have a question about diversification. Okay. Uh, is it possible to be overly diversified? By that I mean I hear on your show and uh, uh, other uh, advisors recommend having a broad spectrum of uh, investments to, uh, to manage volatility. But can't you achieve similar objectives by maybe picking three or four uh, ETFs? I mean uh, something like the S&P 500 or a Russell 1000. It has companies that are in all the uh, industrial categories that I hear people talk about, consumer, uh, consumer products, financial services, manufacturing, transportation, et cetera, et cetera. So why have funds that are dedicated only to those unique industries when you can have the whole thing in, uh, in one or two ETFs? And likewise with bond funds, you know, maybe just a simple a short or intermediate fund, uh, because I'm, I'm concerned that over-diversification diversification dilutes your return. 
I agree with you in concept, Carl. I think you are accurate that you can take a good thing too far. And that is a danger that we try to avoid. And let me explain why. If you over-diversify, all you do is enter redundancy. And that isn't going to accomplish very much. So you're right. You don't need to have 50 mutual funds and ETFs. And if you do, chances are they all own the same stuff. I mean, if you, if you look at every stock mutual fund in the nation, every single one, and there are thousands of them, every single one of them owns Apple stock, right? So why have five funds? I, I, I've seen it. We've seen people come in to see us, and they show us their list of investments, and they're very proud of themselves because of their diversification. They say, look, I own 30 mutual funds. And I'm like, no, you don't. You have one mutual fund 30 times because they all own the same stuff. So you're absolutely right. You want to guard against redundancy. It's what, something we call overlap. You don't want to just buy a fund. You want to look at the, what the fund owns to make sure that fund A doesn't own the same stuff as fund B, because if it does, you have overlap. You're not diversified. You're redundant. So you're absolutely right in concept. But you, on the other hand, in your effort to streamline, in your effort to be more efficient, you can harm yourself without realizing it. And I'll give you a simple illustration with the S&P 500, since you mentioned it. The S&P 500 owns 500 stocks. And you would say to yourself, gee, isn't that broadly diversified? Why else do I need anything else to represent the U.S. stock market? Well, the S&P 500 has two flaws. First, it's only 500. When I say only, it's 500 of the biggest companies in America. And there are three categories of size, small companies, midsize, and large. The S&P 500 is simply large. You're not going to find small companies in it or midsize companies. So you need to have two other investments for those categories. Second, the S&P 500 is constructed on a cap-weighted basis, meaning when it ranks those 500 stocks, it ranks at the top the biggest company. Right now, Apple. The number two stock is the second biggest company, and so on. And then by stack ranking the stocks this way, they allocate their money the same way. So the bigger the company, the more of the fund gets invested into it. And here's the result of that, Carl. The top 50 stocks in the S&P 500 have more money allocated to them in an S&P 500 stock fund than the other 450 combined. In other words, it doesn't really make any difference what the performance of those 450 are because the top 50 are going to dwarf the results because they it, it's not an equally weighted portfolio. It's a cap-weighted portfolio. So you might think you've equally invested in 500 companies and you discover, no, you've really invested in 50 and you've dabbled in another 450. So you need to look at how the investment is constructed to see if it's genuinely giving you the allocation that you're expecting it to produce. And for those reasons, yeah, and, and that's why for those reasons, we have to look a little deeper into the nature of the fund. How is it constructed? Not only what stocks is it buying, but what's the allocation of it? And funds publish their top 10 holdings. 
They don't usually publish their full list of investments. When they do, it appears in their semi-annual report, and it's often several months old. In other words, it might no longer be representative of what they currently uh, invest in. But if you look at their top 10 holdings, some funds will have 60 or 70 percent of all their money in the top 10. Even though they brag about owning a 1,000 stocks, it's the top 10 that get all the attention and all the assets. So you have to look at all of that as well. And then I'll take it a step further. You mentioned a couple of stock funds to solve the problem, and you mentioned a couple of bond funds to solve the problem, but you didn't mention your allocation. In other words, how much of your money will you put into the stock funds versus the bond funds? What's your asset allocation? And we have to go beyond stocks and bonds into real estate and precious metals and natural resources and foreign securities, and the list goes on and on and on. And this is why we conclude that it generally takes 8 to 15 funds to do the job. It, in other words, you can't do it with two or three, but it doesn't take 40 or 50 either. We think a dozen or so, give or take, you, if you do it right, you can get the job done. And the, the spread of investment mix depends upon your risk tolerance. Your risk tolerance, your time horizon, how much money you have invested, your tax situation. In other words, this is a tax-deferred account versus a taxable account. Massive degrees of individual circumstances will color which funds you use and which combination. And that's why I believe there's no substitute for meeting with a financial advisor who can help you figure all of this out to make sure you're getting it right based on your needs. So, Carl, conceptually, you're on the money. The devil, of course, is in the details. Stay with us. Let's get the latest from Larry Perel in the KFI Newsroom. Welcome back to the program. Rick Edelman here. And um, there's been a lot of news in the world of exponential technologies. Apple has now made it official. There have been rumors, there have been, frankly, assumptions that Apple would be heavily involved in autonomous vehicle technology development. And now they've made it official. Apple sent a letter to uh, the U.S. Transportation Department. And they said that they are, quote, investing heavily in machine learning and automation for many purposes, including transportation. So Apple is recognizing that uh, self-driving vehicles are the future, and they are not going to be left out. But they are not suggesting that they're going to build cars. What they're focusing on is the development of the software that is going to help automobiles drive autonomously. So uh, not a surprise that Apple is engaged. Meanwhile, there was uh, some pretty big news from Tesla, but uh, more of the mundane level, but in a really important way. Tesla, of course, the uh, upstart car company that is all electric and at the forefront of self-driving technology. Tesla has been in fights with a number of states across the country because of the way that it likes to sell its cars. Tesla got in a particular fight with the state of Virginia. Pardon me, the Commonwealth of Virginia. Someone has to explain to me the difference between a state and a commonwealth, but the commonwealths get really upset when you call them states. Anyway, Tesla got in a big fight with Virginia because Tesla wanted to open a showroom and sell its cars directly to consumers. Ever been in an Apple store? Right? They sell you their own products right in the Apple store, Tesla basically wanted to do the same thing with its cars. 
And the Automobile Dealers Association sued Tesla, and the state ruled that Tesla couldn't do it. There finally was a compromise, and Tesla was allowed to open a single retail store in Virginia. Now, Tesla wanted to open a second retail store, and Virginia has said, okay. This is a big deal, because this is a direct affront to the automobile dealers of this country. Have you ever noticed that you can't buy a Ford from Ford Motor Company? That if you want to buy a Corvette, you have to go to a dealership that sells Corvettes. You can't go directly to Chevrolet. And this process, this system, has been in place for more than 100 years. And the National Automobile Dealers Association is one of the most powerful lobby groups in Washington. And they work very hard to protect the turf of their dealers because the existence of the dealers is simply the role of the middleman. By having Ford sell cars to the Ford dealers, the Ford dealers mark them up, increase the cost, and sell them to you at retail. The dealers buy them at wholesale. And Tesla is trying to throw that model away. Tesla has been fighting to be able to sell its products directly to consumers, bypassing the dealer network. And the dealerships, as you can imagine, are up in arms over this because their livelihoods are being threatened. Tesla is slowly winning the fight, as testified by what's happened in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Will Tesla have equal success in all the other states across the country? And if so, will the other car makers seek to follow suit? And if so, what happens to the livelihood of the people working in the dealerships? Well, they'll probably just go get jobs at the Tesla showroom directly. What happens to the businesses of those dealerships and the people who own those dealerships? This is further illustration of the disruptive nature of technology, and we're going to have to see what happens next. And that brings me to another example of disruption. You no doubt saw the news because it was page one everywhere, I and mean, when Amazon does something, it gets a lot of attention. And Amazon announced that they are now testing a new concept in grocery stores. Amazon has opened its first grocery store in Seattle, and it's a grocery store with a twist. You walk into the store, you grab food from the shelves, you put items into your cart as you wish, and you walk out. There's no checkout line, and there's no cashier. You see, the way that works is real simple. When you enter the store, you take your cell phone, and you hold it up against a turnstile. And that tells the store that you've walked in, and it logs you into the Amazon network connecting you to Amazon Prime. So, yeah, there's an assumption that you have an account with Amazon Prime. I mean, who isn't buying products from Amazon? And because Amazon now knows you're in the store, using its GPS technology, it's now tracking you through the store. It knows what aisles you're in. It knows where you're stopping to look. It knows what products you're picking up. And as soon as you pick up the product, 
it logs it into your Amazon account. Now, if you change your mind, no big deal. If you put the item back, it notices that as well. But whatever items you keep in your virtual cart in the Amazon website, when you walk out of the store with it, it automatically debits your Amazon account and it bills your credit card. Pretty cool, huh? No more lines in the store. You walk in, you grab what you want, you walk out. What could be simpler? What could be easier? Very exciting. With only one side comment. According to the Department of Labor, there are 3.4 million cashiers in the United States. All of those jobs could be gone if Amazon's technology is adapted widespread through the retail system. Picture every pe person who's working in the stores. Already at Amazon's grocery store, there are no humans other than those who stock the shelves. They're the only people, only humans working in the store. And we can all envision that pretty soon even they will be replaced by robots. So there are no other humans in the store. Imagine that that were going to be the case in every retail store across the country. You walk in, you find what you like, you walk out. The disruption, the economic impact of losing all of those jobs is something that has to be dealt with. And it is an illustration of the wonders of technology and the disruptive side effects that they develop. All of this is the focus of my conversation in my new book that's coming out called The Truth About Your Future, The Money Guide You Need Now, Later, and Much Later. The book is coming out March 14th, and I'm really very excited about it because the book shares with you not only the fact that exponential technologies are going to impact virtually every aspect of our lives, but how they're going to impact your personal finances. Career planning, education planning, protecting your privacy, your investment strategy, where you're going to live. Do you need long-term care? How should you handle your estate planning? The book's getting lots of advanced praise, and we're really excited about it. Let me just uh, share with you. Tom Nally, the president of TD Ameritrade Institutional, says the book is a must-read, a powerful tool, and your future self will thank you. Lucien Engelin, who's uh, the head of... Um, the healthcare network at uh, the Rabode University Medical Center in the Netherlands says the book is spot on and a guide into society of the future. So I'm really excited about my book that's coming out called The Truth About Your Future. It shares with you what you need to be doing to protect yourself and survive and thrive in a technological world that we're not only already in, but will be in even deeper and more so into the future. Watch for the book coming out in March. And when we come back on the program... We're going to take more of your telephone calls. Stay with us for more here on The Rick Edelman Show. Let's get the latest from Larry Perel in the KFI Newsroom. Welcome back to the program. Rick Edelman here, 888-PLAN-RICK. That's the phone number you can call seven days a week all the way to 8.30 p.m. each evening. And that's what Fred did. He's in Arlington, Virginia. Fred, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How can I help you? Uh, my wife and I recently retired. Both of us receive Social Security benefits and pension benefits, some of which are adequate to maintain our lifestyle. But each of us also has a 401K account 
from which we are required to withdraw required minimum distributions. My question is, should we convert our 401k accounts to Roth IRA accounts to allow the assets to compound tax-free? We have sufficient assets in our taxable accounts to pay the taxes, which would be assessed as a result of the conversion. No, I would not recommend it. Um, because all you'd be doing is accelerating the tax payment, and there's no real value in doing that. There's no economic gain to you for doing it. In other words, let me let me back up a little bit and, and make sure everybody understands what we're talking about. If you have money in a retirement account, a 401k at work or a 403b or a thrift savings plan or a 457 plan or even in an IRA, if you have money in a retirement plan of some kind, you have to begin making withdrawals when you reach the age of 70 and a half. Fred, you and your wife, obviously, you're in your 70s, yes? Yes. Because Fred said he's now at the age of having to start taking withdrawals. They're called RMDs, required minimum distributions. The IRS tells you how much you have to withdraw. And the good news is you've enjoyed tax deferral for decades. This money has sat in those accounts. You've never paid taxes. And the IRS says, look, enough's enough. We want our money. So they force you to make a withdrawal so they can tax you on it. Now, you have the option of taking all of that money and converting it to a Roth IRA. The good news about a Roth IRA is that withdrawals are tax-free. And that's kind of where Fred is coming from, right? You're right, Fred. You're saying, gee, if the money were in a Roth, I wouldn't have to make mandatory withdrawals. And even if I did make a withdrawal, the withdrawal would be tax-free. So the Roth is so much better than the account it is in now. So why not convert? Here's why not. When you convert, and Fred knows this, he made the point, when you convert, you have to pay taxes on the full amount of the account right now. This is why the future withdrawals are tax-free. You'll have already paid the tax. So it doesn't make any sense to us. On a straight arithmetic basis, paying the tax right now on the Roth so that you don't have to pay the tax later does not increase your wealth. It does not serve any economic benefit. The only beneficiary, quite frankly, is Congress, because you're getting the distribution immediately, and you're paying taxes on the full distribution immediately, and Congress gets the tax revenue. So they're the only ones who win, and quite frankly, that's why they created the rule, because it's in Congress's best interest. It's not in yours. Do you want me to run through the arithmetic for you, Fred, to understand this point? Uh, no, I'm familiar with the arithmetic. Then there you go. Don't bother doing it. All right. I appreciate your call very much, but I have a feeling I didn't fully persuade Fred. What do you think? Let me run through the arithmetic for you because it's really very simple. Let's say that you've got $100 in your IRA, and let's say that your account doubles in value over some period of time. You now have $200 in your account. And let's say that you make withdrawals in retirement. We're going to pretend you withdraw the whole thing, and we're also going to pretend that you're in a 40% tax bracket between federal and state. Really doesn't matter what tax bracket we assume. We could assume 20% or 10%. doesn't make any difference. We're going to pretend 40%. Well, you've got to pay taxes on your $200, and 40% of that is 80 bucks, which means you end up with 120 net of taxes. That make sense? You started with 100, it doubled to 200, you paid taxes, you ended up with 120 bucks. Now let's go in the other direction. Let's say that you've got $100 and you convert it over to the Roth. You've got to pay taxes right now on the full 100 bucks, And at 40%, that's a $40 tax, leaving you with 60 
And then we'll say the 60 doubles in value. It's now worth 120. You can withdraw it tax free. In other words, if you convert, you end up with 120 net of tax. If you don't convert, you end up with 120 net of tax. They're identical. Whether you convert or not does not increase your wealth. It makes no difference. And since it makes no difference, why on earth would I want to pay a tax now that I don't otherwise have to pay? Because Congress might change the rules, especially with the new administration coming into power. Who knows what the tax rules are going to be over the next four years or eight years or 20 years? Why pay a tax that I don't have to pay, especially since the future tax might be different? So the arithmetic says, don't bother. It's really as plain as day. Back by popular demand is our seminar, Preparing for Retirement. The seminar is uh, covering three essential keys to help you enjoy a successful retirement. Managing the money in your IRAs and retirement accounts, maximizing your Social Security benefits, and protecting your assets. The seminar is coming Tuesday and Wednesday, January 31st and February 1st, both at days at 7 p.m., in uh, Southern California, New Jersey, Summit and Mawa, in Carrollton, Texas, Scottsdale, Arizona, Burlington, Massachusetts, Maitland, Florida, and in Concord and Santa Clara in California as well. We're also doing the event February 7th and 8th, again Tuesday and Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m., in Chicagoland, Costa Mesa and Pasadena, in the Philadelphia area, in uh, Michigan uh, near Rochester and Ann Arbor, Salt Lake City, Boston area, Boca Raton and Miami in Florida, and in Northern Virginia, Alexandria and McLean. The seminar is just $15 a person, $25 a couple, and you can register online at rickedelman.com, that's ricedelman.com, or call us and register over the phone at 888-PLAN-RICK. Let's uh, head off to Banks, Oregon. Robert, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. Uh, glad to talk with you, sir. How can I help you? All right. So my wife and I are in our 70s. And we've had a joint long-term care policy for about 10 years, a little more. Mm -hmm. And we are in good health. And the policy is not inexpensive. Uh, the question we have is, should we keep the policy, let it lapse, or are there other alternatives we should explore? What is your net worth? How much uh, would you say you and your wife are worth in total? Or make it simpler, how much do you have in savings and investments? Uh Probably about uh, $550,000. Then, yes, you and your wife should keep the policy. And the reason is simple. Uh, long, I'm glad you're in good health. I'm glad you don't feel the need for the policy now from a medical perspective. However, uh, as you age over the next 20 years, health is going to deteriorate. That's just the way it is, right? So uh, the according to the statistics, one in two Americans over the age of 65 will need long-term care at some point in the future. And the average cost of care is about 100 grand a year. So it wouldn't take long for you and your wife to have financial difficulty. If one of you needed care at a cost of $100,000 a year, call it eight grand a month, this is in addition to the expenses you incur for the spouse who's healthier. So could you add eight grand a month to your expenses and not face financial challenges? I don't think so. No. <laughs> so what's the uh, annual cost of your premiums at this point? 6000 Yeah, so this is what it comes down to. You're, you're annoyed at spending six grand a year. I get it. I understand completely. But what would you rather do? Spend six grand a year or a hundred grand a year? Uh, six grand. It, and that's, you know, so I agree with your angst. I agree with your annoyance. I agree with the fact it's distasteful. 
But you know what? You got to do it anyway. Uh, because the alternative is much worse, even if it doesn't work out. And if you say to yourself, well, gee, what if I end up dying and never having needed the policy? That was the case of my father. My father had long-term care policy forever, and he ended up passing away without ever filing a claim for long-term care. Do you say to yourself, well, gee, that's awful, that's terrible, proved to have been with such a waste of money, or do you say we had the peace of mind of knowing that he and my mom would have been financially okay had he needed it? And that's the attitude we kind of take. You know, I can give you a similar analysis. You have car insurance, right? Yes. And if you never have a car accident, you never get any benefit of having the insurance. So what are we going to suggest? That you deliberately go wreck your car to get some payback? Mm-hmm. Right? All right. I understand the argument. But the, the quick question, the long-term care industry, though, is in a bit of a trouble. And I'm sure my policy is uh, going to go, the expense is going to go up. Has it not already? Uh, it did once. Uh, it was only about... Ten percent. It wasn't uh, enough to to worry me, but uh, the the company uh, I'm with is about to get purchased because they're in trouble. Genworth. Yes. Uh, I'm not. I don't think you need to be worried about owning a policy from Genworth. The fact that they are being purchased by a Chinese company is good news from a financial perspective, uh, a solvency perspective. I don't think you need to be worried about it from that uh, point of view. Uh, and uh, for all the reasons we've discussed, I think it's in your best yes. interest to continue paying for the policy, even though rate increases might be in your future. Okay. So one last quick quality question. How much money would someone have to have not to really need one of these policies? Enough money so that you could pay for the costs of long-term care without adversely affecting mm-hmm. your spouse and family. Okay. Simple as that. Well, I appreciate that. This, this helps an awful lot. Good. I'm very glad I was able to do that for you, Robert. Thank you so much for calling. A lot of fun being with you here this weekend. Have a wonderful rest of the weekend. I'm Rick Edelman. See you next week.